Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. We'll be discussing how God desires our heart, not us doing a bunch of religious activities, sacraments, and traditions that will never earn our salvation. So if you'll open your Bibles up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, we'll begin our lesson. I will open us up in prayer. Our Father in heaven, just thank you for this day and for this group and for your word that you've given us. And as we continue our study of the Gospel of Mark this morning, I ask that you speak through me, speak through anyone who speaks up, and put on each of our hearts those areas that we need to focus on to become more like you and to represent you to others. And I just ask that you put on our heart those people that we need to say something to or even just ask if we can pray for them. Maybe they're struggling in some way just to begin the conversation. Just put on our heart and help us to be great ambassadors for you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we are now in Mark 7. We finished chapter 6 last time. And where we left off... Jesus was walking on the water, and then it wasn't in Mark's gospel, but we looked at it. Peter walked on the water, and then they crossed over, and they came to some land in the boat in an area just southwest of Capernaum. And then Jesus entered the villages and was healing people and what have you. So now we'll pick up where we left off, chapter 7, verse 1. And the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered together around him, gathered around Jesus, when they had come from Jerusalem. So these are the experts in the Old Testament law. These are the experts in Jewish tradition. And they knew that Jesus was teaching a message that was directly opposed and really an assault on their system of self-righteousness, the way they live their life and their religion. As you recall, Jesus had sent out the disciples to preach previously. We saw that. So word had gotten around. And now you see the Pharisees and scribes, these are some of the religious leaders. They came from Jerusalem. So they want to come see what's going on. And we're going to see there's going to be a little bit of a dispute here. What do they first confront Jesus with here? They're complaining to Jesus. They don't like what his disciples are doing. Verse 2. It says, and they had seen that some of Jesus' disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. So they're complaining to Jesus that the disciples seem to be eating, and they're not washing their hands. And we're going to read, this is just some ceremonial washing that the Jewish religion, all man-made rules that they had come up with. This ceremonial washing was a very prescribed process that they had to do before every meal. Very elaborate, very elaborate. And it even includes cooking and dining utensils. The Talmud, which is sort of like the commentary on the Old Testament as well as Jewish tradition and practices and what have you, It has lots and lots and lots about these ceremonial cleansings and how to go about it the right way, how you're supposed to do it. And the Jews, they had gotten to the point where they sort of measured their spiritual condition by their external conformity to all these rules, these man-made rules, which had really taken the place of Scripture and really taking the place of rather than your spiritual condition being shown by your love for God and your obedience to the Scripture, it was 
you know, just doing all this external stuff. Okay, so I'm setting that up for you because we're going to see how Jesus reacts to this. Their traditions had essentially taken precedence over God's word. And through that, the truth had been lost. They had all these rituals that they practiced outwardly. And those outwardly practices, they did that to try to appear righteous. They thought they had the blood of Abraham and they did these things in order to make themselves look righteous before others. But we're going to see Jesus is going to condemn them. The condition of their heart was terrible. They really didn't have a heart for God. But to them, hand washing had become a salvation issue. Okay, it was like, if you're not doing that, you're a mess and you're not going to be right with God. It was a big deal to them. And because his disciples were not doing it in accordance with the Jewish traditions, we see the leaders, they come all the way out from Jerusalem to call Jesus out on it. So with that background, let's keep reading. It says in verse 3, parenthetical here, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. Okay? Verse 4, And when they come from the marketplace... They do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other such things which they have received in order to observe. Okay, they received them from the Jewish leaders, from man, man man-made tradition. It's not from God. And it says many other things such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. It's interesting if you go and actually look at the Mosaic law in Leviticus 22, 6 through 7, It required ceremonial washing, but only for the priest, okay? (laughs) It only required the priest to do this washing before they then took the sacrifices in and offered the, you know, killed the animals that were brought for sacrificing. But the Pharisees had made up all of these rules, which then had become the tradition for the Jews. And I don't know if y'all have ever gone over there to Israel, but it is an elaborate system. In fact, Restaurants have two kitchens. They can't mix dairy with everything else. I remember when Darren and I were there, we got into Jerusalem real late one night from traveling somewhere else, and we got to the hotel and the restaurant was closed. But they said room service is open. And I said, okay. So I call room service, and I'm just going to order a cheeseburger. And they said, oh, oh, we can't bring you a cheeseburger because we can't mix those things you need to call the other kitchen, the dairy kitchen. And those two things can't be in your room at the same time, even. It's like, seriously? So they think this is honoring God. I'm just giving you one example of many, many. And they think all those things are honoring God, okay? So let's keep reading. Verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands. See, they don't say, why aren't they doing things in accordance with the Mosaic law? No, the tradition of elders. Verse 6, And Jesus said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Okay, he's calling them out. You hypocrites. As it is written, and now he's quoting Isaiah twenty-nine thirteen, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. So what they've done is they've taken this man-made stuff, and now they teach it as if it's doctrines, 
okay, doctrines that have to be observed. So Jesus responds to their question, but not by answering their question. He's showing that they are hypocrites, and he's confronting their false system of unbelief. He's going to answer this question later. We'll see when we get down to verse 17, only to the disciples. But he's calling them out. You know, they try to call him out. Let me show you just a little more on this. I'll just go over there real quick. Matthew 23, 27, if you're taking notes, but I'll just go over there. It's just a couple of verses. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So he's saying this outward stuff you're doing, this man-made outward stuff, it's doing nothing because your hearts are far away from God. He goes on. He's going to say they were never transformed on the inside. Outwardly, they pay homage to God with their lips and traditions, but they don't give God their heart. They didn't attempt to submit to the will of God. Let's look in verse 8. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. So they elevated the traditions higher than even God's word. They placed more focus on upholding these man-made traditions than obeying God's law. Really, what they're doing is they're pretending to love God by externally doing all of these various man-made religious stuff to make it look like they're righteous. I've said this before, there are denominations and religions that do this even today in some of the churches. They've got man-made stuff, and I'll talk more about that in a minute, but there's many denominations that have also then, through their traditions, come up with all kinds of other stuff that they go through and do various things. And you go to some of these churches, and it's just rote. I mean, like it's creeds and this and it's tradition, but you look around and people are just reciting this stuff like they're robots. I mean, their hearts, they're not even thinking about the words. It's just memorized, wrote stuff, and it's just dead. It's dead. And yet they think they're doing something. They look good on the outside. They think they're honoring God and they're not even thinking about God. It's really sad. It's really sad. So we see it today. Verse 9. It says, Jesus was also saying to them, you nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Jesus knew that he and the the disciples, they weren't required to wash their hands like that and follow these man-made traditions. It's only what comes from Scripture. He's saying that's our authority. It's what comes from God. It's not what your men make up. And he's going to give an example of how they have taken their tradition and elevated it above the law, what was given in the Mosaic law, and they've done it in a way to dishonor God. In other words, the man-made tradition has supplanted what God intended. Look at this example, verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of their father or mother, let him be put to death. So this is from Exodus 2012, which is the fifth commandment, as well as Exodus 21:17. So that was the law. That's what was given to them by God. But now watch what they did with it. But you say, in verse 11, 
If a man says to his father or his mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by is Corban, which means it's been devoted to God, it's been given to God. That's what Corban means. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. So let me explain this. What they came up with, while the intent of the commandment was to give love and respect to your parents and take care of them throughout their life, they came up with this man-made tradition that overruled that. And you could avoid assisting your parents. All you had to do is if your parents were in need, all you had to do is say, oh, I wish I could help you, but I've dedicated all my possessions to God. Now, you didn't have to give them to the temple. That's all you had to do. You just said, man, I'd love to help you, but everything I've got, I've given to God. Okay, so their tradition, Jesus is calling them out on it. You could declare all your property and your possessions that they were going to be given to God and then avoid what was commanded, which was to take care of your parents and honor them. But yet then you had this cover of appearing like you were righteous on the outside, you see. And what Jesus is saying is it isn't about what you're doing on the outside. It's what's in your heart. And you're just trying to avoid honoring your parents and you're certainly not seeking God's glory. And so we should never look to any authority that is above Scripture. And I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. But essentially what they had done is they had now allowed their tradition to overrule God's word. And even in this case, invalidating it. He says, look, you do many such things as that. This was just one example. And there are many, many religions that have done this. I know I talk about Catholics, for instance, They've done it with many of the Pope proclamations that have come out. Pope is a man. He's a man of honor, yet there's many things that have come out over the many years that popes have pronounced that are contrary to Scripture, and yet they take the place of Scripture, and you can just watch the way they practice. Everything from praying to Mary or the dead saints, there's not any Scripture that says do that. It says that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are the only intercessors for us. And yet they pray to Mary and the Pope says, go do it. Why would you pray to a dead saint? There's nothing in the Bible that says, go pray to dead people. And why would you do that when you got the Holy Spirit living in you as a Christian? You can go direct. That's one example. There's several denominations, including Catholics, that say baptism is required for salvation. Got no scripture on that, but that's a rule. They came up with it. That's what you got to do. If you haven't been baptized, you're going to hell. Well, no verses on that. Another example, purgatory. Here's a concept. You're not quite good enough to get to heaven, but you get to go to an intermediary place called purgatory. No verses on that. And if you pay enough to the church, you can get your loved one out of purgatory. Or you can pay in advance to maybe get yourself out. I mean, all this stuff that they come up with in Jesus is getting on the Jews about it here, but yet you see it even today in various religions and denominations. And Jesus is telling them, look, when you start taking tradition and putting it above what's in God's word, you're on shaky ground. Your heart's in the wrong place. Let's keep reading. Verse 14, it says, In summoning the multitude again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. 
So Jesus wants them to understand the eternal significance of what he's saying. There is nothing outside the man which is going into him that can defile him, but the things which proceed out of the man are the things that defile the man. So he's teaching that all men are sinners, and of course the Jewish people believe moral corruption originated outside of the person, but Jesus is saying, no, that spiritual cleansing cannot come from these external rituals. And there are many religions and some denominations that believe by doing these external religious things, these rituals, these sacraments, that that can bring about grace and internal cleansing. And you got no verses on that. It's all man-made stuff. And Jesus is saying that right here. Then we have in verse 16, depending on your translation, mine just says, see marginal note. It says, if any man has ears to hear, let him hear. Those words are not in the earliest manuscripts of Mark. That's why it's a marginal note. Although Jesus said that many other times. He said it, we saw it in Mark 4, verse 9 and 23 when we were there. Matthew eleven fifteen. Matthew 13, 9, and verse 43, Luke 8, 8, and Luke 14, 35. So Jesus said that. That's just not in the earliest manuscripts right here in the earliest manuscripts of Mark. Verse 17, And when leaving the multitude, he had entered the house. His disciples questioned him about the parable. So now he's going to explain what he was talking about. And this is probably Peter and Andrew's house in Capernaum, most likely, where they are. Jesus said to them, Are you too so uncomprehending? Do you not see that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. So let me unpack this a little bit. The Pharisees were offended by Jesus' words, what he had said. That's why now the disciples are asking him. In fact, if you go look in Matthew 15, verse 12. Well, I'll go over there real quick. So just before verse 12, then the disciples came to him and said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? We see in Matthew's account that really offended the Pharisees because Jesus was calling into question their religious practices. So I'm going back over to verse 18. On that note right there, these... Pharisees and teachers must really been starting to get a little bit angry or confused or mad. They're angry. Threatening. They're angry. They feel threatened by Jesus and they're angry. They see he's calling into question their entire religious system, the way they practiced it. So yeah, they're angry. That's why they came out there. They're angry. Yeah. They're angry. Absolutely. I have a question. So does the original law prohibit the eating of certain foods? Yes, it did. Thank you for asking. This is where that is now changed. Thanks for asking, and I'm going to get to that right now. So after Jesus gives this mild rebuke to the disciples, and by the way, timing-wise, it's probably now just under a year before Jesus is going to go to the cross, and yet they're still struggling. Even the disciples are struggling with these external rituals versus internal righteousness. When you look at the Jews, and really our culture today views it this way, they view people, they're basically good. Everyone else is bad, but not me. And Romans 3.23 says that we're all sinners, that we all have a sin problem, and it's on the inside. And yet the Jews thought if they look good on the outside, 
and they did these rituals and traditions, then God would treat them as being righteous. And yet it's so clear that God looks at the heart. You can look at 1 Samuel 16, 7, 1 Kings 8, 39, Proverbs 21, 2. They all say that it's not about the outside, it's about the heart. In no external act, circumcision, observing dietary laws, ceremonial cleansing, and today, things like baptism, sacraments, etc., none of that's going to bring salvation. It's just not. you got no verses for that. And so we see here in verse 19, Jesus is now saying because... Larry, can I just add something? Yes. Not only do you not have verses, but God knows what's in your mind and your heart anyway. Exactly, and that's so, what he's saying. Yeah, no, so I it, mean, but it's clear. I mean, why would anything external, when God knows all and knows what's inside, of course it's your heart. It's because people have been brought up and taught by their religious leaders that if you do these various things, that imparts righteousness to you, that that imparts grace to you, that by doing these external things, you go to some of these churches, as I was saying, and they're just chanting these sayings or creeds or whatever, and it's all by rote. And I mean, their hearts, they're not even thinking about God. It's just a dead thing. And yet people go, they think they check the box, and then they go about their lives and live their lives the rest of the week. Yeah, but I mean, God's omnipotent. He knows exactly what's going on. He does. So to think that you're going to fool him, uh, I guess yeah. that's where I'm going. Yep, yep. You're not that's fair. He knows. He knows. And so all this external crap, he's not buying it. You know, I guess yeah. that's where I'm going. Yeah, it's not about anyway. doing a bunch of religious yeah, stuff. He knows. Where is your heart? So let me get to the question. God did create and hand down some dietary laws to the Jews that there were certain foods they could eat and certain foods they were not to eat that were viewed as unclean. That was part of the Mosaic law. There were probably some good medical reasons for some of that, possibly, at that time. They didn't have the sanitary conditions that we have. But it was also given that way in order to set the Jewish people apart because God was trying to use the nation of Israel. He chose them. It wasn't because of anything they did. He chose the nation of Israel to point all the other nations to the one true God. And he wanted them to live differently, live their lives differently. And that's one of the reasons they had these laws. Right here is where Jesus says that no longer applies anymore. And I'll show you over in Acts where it no longer applies anymore. This parenthetical you read here in 19, he says, thus he declared all foods clean. That wiped out all the Jewish dietary laws. And because Jesus said this, this, and Peter was there, this likely influenced and weighed on Peter's own experience in Joppa that we read about in Acts, Acts 10:15. Here, I'll just go over there and read a little bit of that for us real quick. You maybe recall when we were studying Acts, I'm over in Acts 10, and Peter is in Joppa now, and it says, I'll actually begin in verse 9, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, so that's about noon, and he became hungry, and he was desiring to eat, but while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance, and he beheld the sky opened up, and a certain object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground, and there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures of the earth, and birds of the air. And a voice came down to him, Arise, Peter, kill and eat.'" 
But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. Remember, Peter's a Jew, and he abided by the Mosaic law of what foods to eat and what foods not to eat. So he's saying, no, I'm not going to eat of that because some of that is unclean under the Mosaic law. Verse 15, and again a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed no longer, see, this is where it changed, no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. And so Peter was hungry. He knew that it contained foods that were unclean. You can look at that in Leviticus 11 if you want to see where it comes from. But God tells Peter three times that it's clean now. Don't go by that. It's interesting that Peter denied Jesus three times. And then Jesus later asked Peter if he loved him three times. What is going on here? And Peter will remember that Jesus said to him that there are now no unclean foods. What defiles a person is what comes out of the heart, not what's put in their mouth. And so we know in Acts then later, we're going to see that now the Gentiles are going to be given the Holy Spirit and come to faith. And now bringing in Jesus's church, this is the beginning of that, some of the changes that were taking place. So we talked about that at length when I was in Acts 10. If you're interested in more, go listen to the recording. But that's not the point of the lesson today. So let me go back to Mark and just keep going. At the end, if you want to talk more about that, we can. I'm in verse 20 in Mark 7. And Jesus was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. So spiritual defilement, it doesn't come from the outside, but from evil that's on the inside. The corrupt heart can lead to evil words, actions, attitude, thought. He gives some examples here, 21. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts and fornications, that's sexual sin, thefts, murders, adulteries. Adultery is sin that is basically in violation of the marriage covenant. Adultery is sex. One of the parties are married and fornication is sex with neither one of the parties being married. Verse 22, deeds of coveting. So that's greed, wickedness. We know what that is. That's a form of evil as well as deceit. So that's lying, sensuality, That can be lust or just a dirty mind. Envy, slander, which is injurious speech to someone. Pride and foolishness. Pride is arrogance and foolishness could be just moral folly. Verse 23, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So it's not unwashed hands that are going to defile a person. It's an unwashed soul. Go over to Ezekiel. If you can't find it, it's after Psalms and Proverbs over in the Old Testament, about halfway between Psalms and Proverbs and the end of the Old Testament. I'm going to go over to Ezekiel 36, verse 25. I want to see where I wanted to jump in here. And this says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So this is part of the new covenant. You can look at it in Jeremiah 31, 31. We're to be transformed, become new people. That's what having a new heart. There should be an inner transformation that takes place in us when we become a Christian. 
And through the sanctification process over time, we become more Christ-like. I'll take you one more verse. Uh, I've got several here. Let me take you over to Titus 3. Titus is way over to the right from Mark. It's just before Hebrews. And I'll jump in at verse 4. Titus 3, verse 4. It says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. So we're saved, not because of all this external religious sacraments and religious stuff that we do. That isn't what saves us. It says, but we're saved according to his mercy by the washing and regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, that means it's given to us, it's a gift. When somebody gives you something, you don't earn it. If somebody gives you something, you didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it. Otherwise, it's not a gift. Now it's payment, okay? A gift you receive because you don't deserve it. So we are justified by his grace. Again, we see up there not because of anything that we did. By his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So it's by his grace. Okay, let's go back over to Mark 7 and I'll keep reading. Okay, verse 24. And from there, he being Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre. Tyre is modern day Lebanon. It's in the northwest area of Galilee. We'll hear about Tyre and Sidon, and they're about 20 miles apart, sort of on the east shore of the Mediterranean Sea, okay? So he leaves. We see he's been rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. We've seen he's been rejected by the people of Capernaum. We read about that a few lessons ago. So now he's going to leave so he can continue to train his disciples and he's now going to what is predominantly Gentile territory, okay? That's where he's going. So from there, he rose, went away to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. So he still has lots of people. Verse 25, but after hearing of him, hearing about Jesus, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, so one of the fallen angels, a demon, immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile. That's what I told you. This is a Gentile area of the Syrophoenician race. Phoenicia had been annexed into Syria in about 65 BC. And it says, and she kept asking Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. When you look at this woman, a Jew would not like her for many reasons. First of all, women were viewed by the Jews as being inferior to men. She's a Gentile, so she's viewed as unclean. In that area, most of the Gentiles were idol worshipers, so they were viewed by the Jews as being outside of God's grace. But we've got to remember, Mark includes this in his gospel. Mark's gospel is written to a Gentile audience, and he is including this miracle of Jesus to show that Gentile, and Jesus is doing this too, to show that Gentiles could be saved. It's not just the Jews that God always intended the message of salvation to be proclaimed throughout the world. Remember when he exits, when he leaves, we read in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, as he's leaving, he says, go out to all the nations and make disciples among all the nations. That's Jews and non-Jews. So that's always been the plan. 
even though initially the Jews thought anyone who was a non-Jew was an unclean outcast, the problem was the Jews failed in their mission, just like Jonah did when we studied Jonah. Jonah didn't want God to save the Ninevites, and the Jews looked down on the Gentiles, and rather than helping point them towards the one true God, they just viewed them as outcasts and viewed them as enemies. And so here we see that this Jewish woman who Jews would have viewed as outside God's blessing, Jesus wants to teach the disciples otherwise. This woman, she just keeps asking for Jesus' help. She wouldn't give up. If you read the account in Matthew 15, 22, it says she cried out, Jesus, have mercy on me, son of David. So she's begging for mercy, not on the basis of her goodness, but on who Jesus was. And she acknowledges Jesus as Lord and as the Messiah. So we see Jesus is not ignoring her. He's not doing this to be rude. You'll see as he talks to her, it looks like he's putting her off. But he wanted her to demonstrate her faith for herself and for the disciples. Remember, she is a non-Jew. And we read in Matthew 15, 23, the disciples actually wanted to send her away. So they even still have this lingering prejudice towards Gentiles. They wanted her to go away. So let's watch the dialogue between this woman who, by the way, Jesus knows she has faith. He knows she's going to persevere through this trial. But it's going to appear that he's putting her off. Verse 27. She's begging for mercy. His response is, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So Jesus is saying that the Messiah's priority was to preach the gospel to the children of Israel. All right. The expansion of the gospel to the other nations, that would come after Jesus's ascension and giving of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus was coming first to the Jews. But Jesus knows that she's been divinely given her faith and she's not going to be discouraged by this. And watch how she responds. She's actually going to respond by showing tremendous trust in Jesus. She's going to extend his analogy, this eating at the table and the dogs underneath. She's going to extend it by showing she is very humble. She knows that she's an unworthy Gentile, unlike the Jews think they're all that. She knows she's unworthy. She's not self-righteous like the Jews. And we're going to see she is just okay with the crumbs. And when you think about it, a tiny fragment of Jesus' power was enough in her mind to heal her daughter. And the scriptures and the Old Testament covenants, they were all initially given to Israel. But God intended the overflow of that to extend to the Gentiles and later, after his ascension, to all the nations through the church. So let's see how this dialogue goes. Verse 28. So he's saying... It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, meaning I got to deal with the Israelites first. She answers and says to him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. So Gentiles do receive overflow and Gentile conversions. They did happen in the Gospels, even though Jesus was initially coming for the Jews. But that really previews that there's going to be future salvation for the Gentiles, for non-Jews, and for the nations. Verse 29, and Jesus says to her, because of this answer, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. 
So Jesus said, because of her great faith, he says this in Matthew 15, 28, if you look at that, because of your great faith, your daughter has been cured. And this is so typical. Jesus never refuses anyone who seeks him in faith, never turns them away. Verse 30, and going back to her home, she found the child on the bed, the demon having departed. So Jesus didn't have to be there to have the demon removed. His power is omnipresent. He can do that from anywhere. The other thing is, I think we see that Jesus really tested her faith, and it was strengthened through this whole process, through him testing her. He was putting her off at first. He knew that she had been divinely given her faith, and through that process, she even grew in her faith. True faith persists and endures even when tested. Verse 31. And again, Jesus went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. So he's now back over to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. Decapolis is a region. Decapolis means 10 cities. It's an area on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee. And when we read this account in Matthew 15, 29 through 31, it says Jesus was healing many people there. These are primarily Gentiles and maybe even some of the ones being healed were idol worshipers. Verse 32, and they brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty and they entreated Jesus to lay his hands upon him. So Jesus is going to perform another miracle. And so this deaf person, he has a speech impediment as well. His friends are begging Jesus on behalf of their friend. And because this person is deaf, he has a speech impediment as well because of that. When Jewish people would see a person like this, they would view those infirmities as judgment. Like that person has that because they're a bad person. They're not righteous like I am. God is judging that person, and that's why that person has infirmities. They're wicked. And so this person was probably an outcast. But we're going to see Jesus isn't afraid of ceremonial defilement. You weren't even supposed to touch somebody like this because then you'd be unclean. But Jesus, once again, is going to show his compassion even to this outcast. Verse 33, And Jesus took him aside from the multitude by himself, and he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, Jesus spits, he touched his tongue with the saliva, that's Jesus' saliva, and looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Okay, that's Aramaic for be opened. So why is Jesus doing all this touching here? We know he just removed a demon without even being there. He is doing this. He's kind of using sign language with this man to show that he actually knew he was deaf. He knew he had a speech impediment. And then we see Jesus look up to heaven because then he's trying to show the man it's God's power that's going to heal you. And Jesus showed the man that it was God's compassion and healing that then brought about this healing. He says, be open. Verse 35, and the man's ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was removed and he began speaking plainly. So it wasn't like he then all of a sudden had to go to speech class. You see that? I mean, it was instant. He had never even heard language. Instant. He's speaking. What a miracle. Speaking plainly. He knew how to speak. Okay. Verse 36. And Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. I don't want to spend a lot of time here. We've talked about this before. Here Jesus is telling them to keep quiet about the miracle. 
We've seen other places, even in the same area in Decapolis, when he was there, when we were over in Mark 5, 19 through 20, he told those people in the same town to go tell. Here at this point in his ministry, he preferred to try to keep it quiet. He didn't want everyone now trying to make him king, for instance, because of all these miracles. That was not his mission. You can look in John 6, 15, it says that. In fact, when we go and look in Mark 8, 30, next time when we get to Mark 8, Jesus even told the disciples there to keep quiet until after his resurrection because he wanted his message now to be all about his death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins, just as written in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. And where was that in the timeline, Larry? He's already beginning to shift his ministry. I think I said maybe a lesson or two ago. He's now more focused on teaching the disciples rather than doing a bunch of miracles. He's done these miracles. They've seen him. They know he's got power. We saw he walked on the water. Peter tried to walk on the water. His focus is now trying to train the disciples. That's his real focus. He'll still heal some people here and there, but it's more focus on the disciples. Verse 37, just to close out. And they were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. That means exceedingly well. They're astonished. They're amazed. He makes even the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. And so how do we apply some of this just in summary today? First of all, I hope you all are seeing, and I've tried to mention it as much as I can because I wasn't raised that way. I thought it was all about performing a bunch of religious stuff and rituals and traditions and sacraments. That's how I was raised. But Jesus makes it so clear. The performance of religious acts and rituals, traditions, sacraments, they don't produce personal holiness and purity. They do not. Now, it's okay to do some of those things. It's about your heart. If you're doing things to bring glory to God and to honor Him and to worship Him, that's different. But none of those things are what give you your salvation. And that's where people get very confused. There are these other, I'll just say, religions or denominations that teach some of that stuff. You got to do it. And it's a legalistic thing. You got to do it. That's not what Jesus is teaching. We can see very clearly today. Faith coupled with humility, that's what pleases God. It's when we're humble, we have faith, and we do things to honor and bring glory to God, not to ourselves. We're not doing it just to look good on the outside. So I'd ask all of us, just to ask the Holy Spirit to help us make our worship of Him meaningful and not just mechanical and rote. Even the things you do when you go to your church. There's so many churches that I sometimes attend as a guest and I look around and you can see people are just going through the motions. I mean, they look like zombies. That is doing nothing for them and is doing nothing for God. So I ask that we all pray that we don't become that way. God will always meet our needs when we are totally dependent on him. That's why he puts us through so many trials. He wants us to see he's the one that's in control, not us. And Jesus is going to test our faith from time to time with trials. And the purpose of that is to help us grow in our faith and remind us it isn't about us. It's about him. It's about his plan. And we got to trust him and depend upon him. And finally, I'd say just take the gospel message to everyone without prejudice. 
We even saw here with the Gentile woman, the disciples even wanted her to go away. Everybody out there, God wants to try to reach, okay? And sometimes I think we can even let our own prejudices and judgments and what have you. It might be somebody we see and they're maybe even from a different country or whatever. And it's like, well, I'm not going to waste my time with them. They probably don't care anyway. Look, if God places them in your path, ask God, is that somebody you want me to talk to? Just plant the seeds. We're not there to convert anybody. That's not our job, but planting seeds is. So I'll open it up for questions. What questions or comments might you have on the lesson today? The other thing that stood out for me was this idea of tradition and how it can interfere. And I went to a funeral recently, and it was this rote text out of the funeral rite, and it was so dead. And it just was so sad because it wasn't a celebration of the person's life and about Christ. And it was just this, everybody just read this, and it was just, it was just awful. Yep. And it, anyway. I've been it was, there. It was just a reminder of how it's still applicable today and people don't see it. And I'll say this, and I don't say this to offend anybody, so please don't take this wrong. But if you are at a church that you've been going to forever, maybe even went there as a child, and it's tradition. But if you look around and it is just rote, maybe that is where God wants you. You need to go to the church that God wants you. But I would encourage you just one Sunday, go find, talk to your friends who don't go to that church, ask where they go to church, go try to find a Bible-preaching church that actually preaches the Bible, and just go one time and just try it. And see if you don't come away from there being more energized and more in tune with Jesus than going through the rote stuff that you've been, the tradition stuff. Because I am so thankful for the church that I go to. And I'm not telling you, there are lots of good churches. I leave there just energized. I can't wait to get there. And when I leave, it's like, wow, man, that was awesome. I'm ready to go out into the world. So if you're not at a church like that, there's one out there. Just go find it. I think that's where God wants you. Pray about it. Try different churches. Try some different things. But go where God wants you. Thank you for joining us today. Larry would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to Larry at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and Larry's weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. We hope you will join us next time as we continue our study.